We're going to have a Bible reading just now, and it's from Acts chapter 17. So if you want to turn that up in the Pew Bibles, it's page 1113, 1113. Acts chapter 17, reading from verse 16. Very often we read today accounts of the resurrection. Did that down at the lake this morning, and a big thanks to everybody who made that service so special, and indeed the breakfast afterwards so special. But we did that down at the lake this morning. We read an account of the the resurrection. And here we're going to read something of the resurrection being proclaimed. And therefore, it will help us understand the implications of it for our lives. So Acts chapter 17, from verse 16, page 1113. We remember this is God's word. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to dispute with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, which, where they said to him, may we know what is this new teaching that you are presenting? You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we want to know what they mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, men of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. Now what you worship as something unknown, I am going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. From one man he made every nation of men, that they should inhabit the whole earth, and he determined the times set for them and the exact places where they should live. God did this so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by man's design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, for he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to all men by raising him from the dead. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, we want to hear you more on this subject. At that, Paul left the council. A few men became followers of Paul and believed. Among them were Dionysius, a member of the Areopagus, and a woman named Damaris, and a number of others. Amen. We trust that God will bless to us this reading from his word. If you have a Bible close to you, uh, let's turn to Acts 17, those verses that we read earlier, page 1113 of the Pew Bibles. Because today, all over the world, of course, 
Christians are celebrating the fact that Jesus is risen. 2,000 years ago, his dead body was laid in a tomb, and on the third day, he emerged from that tomb alive. He was not resuscitated. He hadn't had a near-death experience. He was raised. He had really died, and he was raised to life. And, and you might think it's, it's uh, almost unnecessary to explain the resurrection so basically and, and clearly, but of course, what passes for a lot of religious talk around today doesn't really correspond to this. Uh, you, you'll find that, that people talk about Easter being a symbol of hope, uh, and sometimes what they mean by that is that, well, there's no real ground or fact to the story of Jesus, but it's a good story, and it sort of gives us hope that out of bad things, good things can happen. Everybody likes that. You, you, you maybe have heard a Sunday sequence just, uh, I think it was a week ago, uh, when a number of people were on uh, just debating the question, you know, do you have to believe that these things really happen to benefit from the hope of Easter? Well, that was the the question. Genuine Christianity has always maintained that Jesus has risen from the grave. Now, maybe some of us today have, have questions about that. Maybe some of us who believe it sort of struggle to explain it or to explain the implications of it. So, we're, we're going to think about that a little bit together uh, this morning. And, and we're not going to do a full uh, uh, exploration of the evidence for the resurrection, but, but let me just make a couple of points about uh, why we can, we can trust this before we go on to the uh, implications of it. First of all, there is incredible historical evidence for Jesus. That's something that, that passes many, many people by. So here, here we are, for example. Here are at least five different uh, historical writers, Josephus, Pliny, Tacitus, Suetonius, Eliezer. None of those were Christians. Some of them were Jews. Some of them were Romans and so on. None of them believed in, in, in Jesus in a, in a saving way. But, but as they write about him from a, a, a non-biblical perspective, as we pull together the things that they said about him, here are some of the things that, that we pull together from their writings. There was somebody who called Jesus, who was called the Christ, and lived at the time that the Bible said he lived. He had a brother called James. He was crucified under Pontius Pilate by the orders of Pontius Pilate. There was a belief, don't forget these are skeptics who are writing, there was a belief that he wrote, rose from the dead. His followers were called Christians. They worshipped Jesus as God, and Christianity was a, a worldwide movement by AD 70, by the time that Jerusalem Temple was destroyed. Uh, in, in broad terms, that's a, a remarkable correlation of the outline of what the Bible says about Jesus and his followers. So next time somebody says to you, oh, you know, there's really no evidence that Jesus existed at all outside of the Bible— uh, perhaps you could uh, remember some of those things. Now, there, of course, there, there are lots and lots of details in the Gospels that, that these people don't talk about. Well, can we trust those? Well, let's just give an example. Again, we don't have time to go into it all, but let's give an example of why this is a reliable record. And, and it's simply to make this point. Jesus' resurrection was, was written off in the Scriptures very close to the date that it actually occurred. 
uh, what that means, because lots of people say, well, you know, uh, there are just legends that grew up. You know, it's like fishermen. They, they catch a, a minnow and they've, beached, they, they've landed a whale. You know, it's that sort of a thing. It, it grows in the telling. Well, well, there wasn't time for legends to build up about the resurrection of Jesus. Take, for example, Mark's account of the life of Jesus. Mark, interestingly, in one place, mentions the high priest but does not name him. Now, why would he not name him? Well, the people who who know these things, the Bible scholars and so on, they they say that he was just referring, therefore, to the current high priest, as if we might say, well, you know, uh, they went and they told the queen. We don't say which queen it is or which king it is. We're referring to the current queen without naming her. And, and it was the same for Mark. Mark expected his readers to know who he was talking about. He expected them to know that it was Caiaphas. He didn't need to say that Jesus was brought before the high priest who was at that time Caiaphas. He just talks about the high priest. So it means that he wrote that, or at least wrote the notes for his gospel, when Caiaphas was still in office. The historians tell us that Caiaphas was high priest from AD 18 to AD 37, So the latest point that these things could have been written down was AD 37, and the earliest that scholars think that Jesus could have died was AD 30, which means that these things were written down within a few years, seven years at most, of them taking place. No way that legends could grow up in that time. So so whenever we're we're, we're looking at the, the Gospels, and we read about the resurrection of Jesus, we realize that there are little details like this and, and so many others that only make sense if, if what they are telling us is true, actually happened. Well, if we accept that, or at least we are able to, to move forward with that assumption, the question then is, well, what does it mean? What does it mean if, if Jesus was buried and was raised to life again? Well, to answer that question, we're looking this morning at Acts chapter 17, because we're looking at, at, at how the first followers of Jesus took that truth that has transformed their lives and proclaimed that to others. It's a good principle, isn't it, to go back to those first eyewitnesses and see what it meant in their eyes. And what we find is that they make particular claims about the implications of the resurrection of Jesus. They do that here in a, when Paul visits Athens in Acts chapter 17. Paul is the preacher. He's preaching about Jesus and the resurrection. And in fact, he, he talks so much about the resurrection that the people actually misunderstand him. You see in verse 18 there of chapter 17, it says, others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. And it looks as if the Athenians misunderstood him. They thought that, that one of Paul's gods was called Jesus, and of course he was, but that one of Paul's gods was also called Anastasis, which is the Greek word for resurrection. So, so much was he talking about the resurrection that, that the Greeks thought that he had two gods to talk about. So, what does it mean? What, what does the resurrection mean? Well, Here's, here's our first thing. Jesus, Jesus is risen, and therefore we ought not to build our lives, to base our lives on anything or anyone else. 
Paul's on his own at this part of the journey. We see that in verse 16. He's waiting for Silas and Timothy to join him, and he's exploring the city, and he sees that the city is full of idols. Uh, Athens was famous for this. There were uh, 10,000 people who lived in the city. The historians tell us there were 30,000 idols at different places in the city. There were statues and images and temples and all sorts of things. And and this was very much part of Greek thinking. Some people said it was easier to find a god than a man in Athens. And this is what the population were, were living for. They were basing their lives on these beliefs. And what does Paul do as he walks through the city? Well, he, he doesn't just think, well, this is interesting. He doesn't look at the, the history and so on. He's distressed. It says in verse 17, he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day after day with those who happened to be there. In other words, he, he's distressed at the idols and he tells them about Jesus. Now, we might say today, some people might say today, Paul was intolerant. He he should have recognized the value of all of their traditions and so on, celebrated the richness of these varied paths. But Paul's not impressed. He's brokenhearted. And he, he, he majors on Jesus and the resurrection because he understands that if Jesus has been raised from the dead, then Jesus is not just one way among many. He is King of kings and Lord of lords. And to serve and follow him is most necessary. It's not an option. It's a necessity. Lots of people say that to us, don't they? That's nice for you to believe in, but it's just not for me. As if Jesus is an option. But you see, if Jesus has gone into a tomb, stepped out again, raised to life by his heavenly Father, it shows that he is King of kings and Lord of lords. He is God above all gods. Other foundations are instantly declared unsustainable and useless because if he is alive, he is the only way to know God. Jesus' resurrection shows that all other foundations for our lives are futile. So today, we don't bow down to statues generally, but we do base our lives on other things than Jesus. So the person who's, who's basing their lives on something like this, I just want to get what I can get. The, the person who dies with the most toys wins. Well, Jesus is risen, so that's inadequate. The person who's living for their reputation, I want people to know my name. Jesus is alive, so that's inadequate. The person who says, I'm just living for my family. I want to to give them the best start that they can have, and and I want them to remember me as a a great parent. Jesus is risen, so, so that's inadequate. You see, unless we're living for him, unless he's at the center of our lives, unless we're trusting him and following him and looking forward to being with him forever, then what we're living for is 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 empty. That that's the implication of what Paul is saying here. So that's the first thing. We we ought not to base our lives on anything else. Second thing, Jesus is alive. We've got to be prepared to meet him, to face him. Now, we don't have time to go into all the details of Paul's sermon here. It's a fantastic sermon in that he uses particular springboards from the culture of the time to get to talk about Jesus. Great lessons here for us as 
as we interact with people who are skeptical. But, but where we want to get to is to see where Paul gets to in verses 30 and 31. In the past, here, here's where he gets to before he's sort of interrupted. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, for he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to all men by raising him from the dead. So for Paul, here's one of the implications of the resurrection, and it is an implication that affects everybody, and it is this, everyone is accountable to him. He is the one we must stand before. Now, now this is the very reason that many people want to rebel against the truth of Easter. The reason that we tend to hold God at arm's length is that we, we say this can't be true because I don't want it to be true because if it is true, then I'm accountable to him. I'm not a free agent. It's not up to me to follow the desires of my heart and, and to, to just do what seems right in my own eyes. People want there to be no one to be accountable to. And yet the resurrection says, no, 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 that's not true. Jesus will be the judge of all. Paul says this here. Notice that he's an entirely fair judge. He's the one who judges with justice. We might be able to prove something beyond reasonable doubt, but we don't really ever know the full story, do we? Don't know about motives and circumstances so much. But Jesus does. He sees it all. We're an open book before him, and so he judges with justice. You think of what, what that's going to be like you look at the world sometimes, even this week, and, and, and think just how far away from God's plans this world is. Not a day that we don't turn on the TV or read the papers and find ourselves assaulted by story after story and instance after instance that are examples of the fact that our world is in rebellion against God. Whether it's the murder of a journalist in Derry or the stabbing of a teenager half a mile from where we're sitting now, or whether it's the bombs in churches and hotels in Sri Lanka. This world is, is, is far from the world, the perfect world that God designed. And we might want to say, why is it, God, that you don't just bring everything to an end and, and judge it all? And yet in our moments of, of insight, we know that we are part of the problem, aren't we? We are the ones who have contributed somehow to the brokenness and fallenness of this world. And yet we face the one who comes to judge with justice. So every person, ourselves included, has to give an account to Jesus, whether they bothered with him or not, whether they believed in him or not. Everybody will, me and you. Jesus is risen, so we must be prepared to face him. Last thing, just in a word or two. Jesus is risen, so all may believe. All may believe. Why is it that Paul is doing what he's doing? Why is he preaching and reasoning? Why does he spend his time in the synagogues and the marketplaces and with the philosophers well, because he knows it is possible for people to believe. He knows that he has a message to share and proclaim. 
he is able to call people to believe in something or in someone in Christ, and the resurrection of Jesus seals that. Remember in Corinthians, Paul famously says, if Christ has not been raised, then we are still in our sins. So, so Paul knows that the resurrection of Jesus is essential to the work that Jesus did. If he was not raised, there is no way that, that the claims that Jesus made were achieved. He laid down his life as a ransom for many, he said. How would we know if he had achieved that? He's on the cross. He utters those amazing words, it is finished. How would we know if he achieved that if he was never raised from the dead? How would we know if it wasn't just Jesus saying, well, I hope I've done something to help people out? Not at all. The resurrection clears all of that up. It means that Jesus has finished a perfect and complete work. A perfect salvation is on offer to welcome people into. And because Jesus has risen, all may believe. And so Paul confidently walks through Athens, speaking to all, calling them to Jesus Christ, seeking to say, Jesus is alive, and therefore, you must believe, you may believe. And that same message goes out today, here and now. Believe in this Lord Jesus. Turn to Him. In Athens, we see that there are three responses. There are three very typical responses to the call to trust in Jesus Christ. You will see them perhaps in your story, and you will see them in your circles. So, so look at verses 32 and 34, 32 to 34. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council. A few men became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysius, a member of the Areopagus, and also a woman named Damaris, and a number of others. So you see the reactions. There are three of them. There's rejection, there's delay, and there's belief. There are some who reject the message. You see, it's the point of the resurrection that's the particular sticking point for them. They realize that it becomes personal. We, we read that the, the people in Athens were people who loved a religious argument. They loved to sit around and to talk about the latest ideas. But the resurrection sort of cuts across that and says, look, Jesus is alive, and therefore you must deal with him. He makes claims over your life. And you see that they cover their resurrection, or they, they cover their rejection, sorry, but by the most common reaction that we find today, sneering, mocking the message, probably the messenger. And you can just imagine them walking away saying, oh, what a fool that guy is. Rejection. Some, some people, however, delay. We want to hear you again on this subject. Now, many of us, have got that within our story, haven't we? There was a time whenever we were weighing all of this up and we were saying, I want to look into this further. And you, you know that, that if you've been coming here for a while, we really encourage people to, to ask the questions, to look into it. We believe that, that Christianity can <clears throat> stand up to rigorous exa examination. But there is a point at which we must decide to come to Jesus, even with our questions. Because these people say, we'd like to hear you again on this subject, and yet we don't ever hear that they do. We might think that we have the luxury of 
turning over the claims of Christ at our leisure. But we ought to really respond urgently as soon as we possibly can. We talk about the thief on the cross at Easter sometimes. We talk about him as this great example of someone who slipped into heaven at the last minute. But what we can also say about the thief on the cross is that very likely he turned to Christ at his first opportunity, which also happened to be his last. Some delay. And some believe. Not many, but some, including these two people who are named. Some see, you see, that Jesus is alive. And for them to build their lives on anything else is, is folly. Some see that because Jesus is alive, they've got to reckon with him. They can't sit on the fence with Jesus. And because he is alive, they may believe. They may entrust themselves to him. This morning, we find ourselves pictured here in these three responses, all of us somewhere. Rejection, delay, belief. Really no other options. This is a good day to believe. Every day is a good day to believe. But today is a good day to believe. This resurrection day when we say, Jesus is alive. Everything else is an empty foundation. Jesus is alive. We've got to deal with him. Jesus is alive. We may come to him. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you that Paul took the implications of the resurrection and made them so clear for us. We pray that we may not be tempted to look anywhere else but this risen Savior, the one with whom we must deal. But thank you that because he is alive today, we may believe in his name and believing in his name have life everlasting. Help us, Lord, we pray, for we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.